Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Well, amen. We should tell it on the mountain, because Jesus is born. Not just born, but He lived. He died. He rose from the dead so that we could experience salvation and eternal life. In fact, as we've looked at this particular series, Advent from each Gospel, One of the things that I hope comes to bear in your mind as we think about Advent season is the reality that each of the gospel writers wanted us to know that the Advent was far more important for what it stood for at the latter part of Jesus' life and His death and His resurrection than sometimes we give it credit in terms of the sentimental nature of what we think about when we think about the events of the Christmas season. In previous weeks, we've looked at what Matthew and what Mark and what Luke have had to say about Advent, and now we turn to the Gospel according to John. What does John tell us about Advent? He's the fourth, or this is the fourth Gospel in the New Testament. It's hard for me to say, I don't know that I have a favorite Gospel account. Uh, I love Matthew and the specifics of his uh, gospel writing and the way he connected things. At some point in the future here at Wilkesboro Baptist Church, I'm going to preach through the gospel of Matthew from beginning to end. It's just a beautifully constructed narrative account of who Jesus is and what Jesus is all about. Then you get to Mark, and Mark is so insistent on focusing on the immediacy of Jesus' ministry, who He is and what He did. He's the servant who came to be a Savior and a Redeemer. And Luke gets at the personal nature of Jesus' ministry that he wanted... Uh, He came to save everybody in the sense of his ministry is universal, uh, but his ministry is also so intensely personal that he wants you and me to come to faith in a real way, in a personal way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, are part of the Synoptic Gospels. Those Gospel accounts either had a source, a common source, or relied on one another in some fashion as they were written because the narratives and the stories are so much alike. And then John's gospel kind of comes out of a completely different perspective. In fact, I would encourage you at some point to read through the four gospels in kind of succession. And what you're going to discover is Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar in the way that they're framed, at least and organized in some of the narratives and stories. And then John is completely different. Nearly all of the main stories in John's gospel are extended stories. Chapter 4, for example, is the narrative with Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Chapter 3 is largely the story between Jesus and Nicodemus. You get long sections of Jesus' teaching in various points in the Gospel of John. John chapter 6, uh, the, the Jesus teaching there the night before He was crucified, beginning in John chapter 13 and extending all the way through John chapter 17. Uh, and then you get other stories, like the story of Jesus healing the blind man. What is John's purpose? I, I think personally, as I've looked and studied and researched about the Gospels and the Gospel writers, what I think probably took place is John was getting up in years... And likely by the time he wrote his gospel account, he would have been the last living apostle or one of the last living apostles 
on earth. And probably what happened, or what we might could speculate is happening, and I think church history bears this out, is some followers came to John and maybe said to John, John, would you write down your recollections your, your memories uh, of what took place when you walked and when you talked with Jesus. And so as John sat down uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to pen his gospel, the 21 chapters that we read in the gospel of John, he begins in a place that neither Matthew, Mark, or Luke begin. And when John deals with the Advent, he doesn't go back and tell the story of Mary, for Luke had already told that story. He doesn't go back and tell the story of the wise men, for Matthew had already told that story. He doesn't go back and tell the personal nature of those events, for again, Luke and Matthew had shared that. It was already there. As John began, John began in a place that was uniquely John, uniquely purposed for his audience but also uniquely and distinctly connected to all of the pages of Scripture. He began in the beginning. If you will, read with me. We're going to read through the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John as we look at Advent according to John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men." The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. What a tragic affirmation that that John wrote there. Jesus came to his people, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, the people who had the law, the people who had the word of God, the people who had the commandments, the people who had the temple and the tabernacle, and all of those means by, by which they could know God. And yet his own people rejected him. Verse 12, one of the most encouraging verses in all of the Bible, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. What John does in this wonderful gospel account is he begins at a place that would draw Jewish readers in and he begins with a word that would draw Gentile readers in. He says, in the beginning was... The Word. In the Greek language, that's the word logos. It means reason or means word. It carried with it implications with regard to Greek philosophy. The idea of reason or rationality being the framework for how we interact with one another and make sense of the world in which we live. And within Greek philosophy, that word had been used and adapted to carry with it some kind of idea of some superimposed rationality. 
not altogether that different from the way that the scientific world in which we live has given, uh, given preference to the idea of reason or rationality dictating what is ultimate truth. There's some connection to those ideologies or those thought processes. And so John uses the word logos. In the beginning was the logos. Now, one question over the years has been, was John connecting to an idea that we need to know something more or special about God in a way that is unique? Gnostics, which are a group of people who came along about the time that, Paul, that John was writing, and not too far after John was writing, they came along and they said things like this to Christians and others who might be thinking about faith, hey, you need this special experience with God that only this special knowledge can give you. You need something more. You need something deeper. You need something more meaningful. And the Gnostics had picked up on this idea of Logos, this connected Greek theme, this idea of Logos, and they had drawn from it. And so some have wondered over the years, is John trying to draw our attention and remind us that Jesus is the Logos? He is the special experience that we need from God. Because the Gnostics were wrong about the idea that we need something special and unique beyond Jesus. What John makes very clear in his gospel is we don't need anything more than Jesus. We don't need anything deeper than Jesus. We don't need anything more meaningful than Jesus because the way John is going to describe Jesus in all the pages of his gospel is there is no one more meaningful and more special and more wonderful and more unique than Jesus. And he writes that in this prologue in these first 18 verses. Others have wondered over the years, is John trying to go back to the Old Testament? John's gospel is, is full of Old Testament references. And I think there's some truth to that. I think one of the reasons John begins the way he does in the beginning, it draws us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning was God. And John says in the beginning was the Word. So he's making a connection the Jewish readers would have drawn to. And also, one thing we need to really grasp, it's one of the reasons that John called Jesus the Word, in the beginning was the Word, is because... God gave us the ability to know Him through written and spoken language. And think about Genesis chapter 1, for example. In the beginning was God, and God did what to bring creation into being? He spoke. And how do we know who God is and what God wants from us? Well, there are 39 Old Testament books that tell us who God is and what God expects of us. There are 27 New Testament books. God speaks, and the ability of the spoken word is one of the primary reasons why we can know who God is. So here's the first implication that I'd like to draw from John chapter 1 with regard to Jesus coming into the world. According to John's advent, Jesus came as the word so that we might know God. Why did Jesus come as the Word? Why does John describe Jesus as the Word? Why does he use that description? It's very simply, he does that so that we can know God. The ability to rationally interact with one another is a gift of being made in God's image. God made us in His image. He gave us the ability to discuss and converse. He gave us the ability of language. Language is non-existent outside humanity. Well, outside in the creation order, outside humanity. Animals don't have language. They may have instinctual sounds and noises, but it's not language. Humans have language. Where did that come from? It came directly from God. 
And Jesus came as the Word so that we would be able to know God. It's tremendously important what John writes here. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in our translation, the ESV that I'm reading from, and in your translation, it makes it very clear that what John is saying is, the Word, who he's going to describe in a few moments and make clear who that is, it's Jesus in human flesh, Jesus is God. And so one of the things that John does specifically in his gospel account is he is emphasizing the theological nature of the fact that Jesus is God in human flesh. In other words, God the Father is God, and yet Jesus is God as well. He's giving us the framework for a Trinitarian formulation of our faith. Now, some over the years have questioned not only this text, but that idea. In fact, within about 300 years of of church history, a gentleman by the name of Arius came along and said, Jesus is not the same as God. His essence is is not quite God-like. It's sort of God-like. It's close to God-like. It's similar to God, but it's not actually God. And so that was the first major heresy that the church had to deal with. And at the Council of Nicaea, In AD 325, the church gathered together, the bishops gathered together. Athanasius was one of those who had written a fantastic treatise on the Incarnation. Athanasius and many others were there. And they declared, reminded basically what Scripture said, that Jesus is indeed God. say, Pastor, why are we talking about 1,700-year-old church history? Well, I just want to remind you that 1,700-year-old heresies still find their root in life today. Anybody heard of Jehovah's Witnesses? Jehovah's Witnesses distort John chapter 1 verse 1. Their translation of the Bible reads this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Little g. And the reason they do that is because in the Greek language, there is not a definite article with the word God, theos, in the Greek language. And so they supply an indefinite article, which, by the way, sometimes does happen in the Greek language, the way it's translated. The Greek language does not include a, all right? Greek language has a definite article, the, but it does not have the indefinite article, a. So some have come along and said, okay, what John is trying to tell us is that Jesus was a God, sort of like God. Well, well, let me just make, I'll try to take something that's technical and say in about three minutes and not put you all to sleep. In in the Greek construction, uh, it it actually reads like this. It is kai theos hain halagos. Logos is the last word in the construction, not the first word in the construction. In our English reading, and the word was God, God is at the end. But in the Greek construction, God is at the beginning. Why is God at the beginning in the Greek construction? Because John wanted to emphasize that the word was God. He was emphasizing God. The reason there's not a definite article with theos in the beginning part of that construction is simply because the definite article had to be with logos uh, at the end of the construction. And in the Greek language, as you look at it, there are not multiple definite articles in the same phrase. So John, it ought not in no point was John trying to tell us that Jesus was a God. The construction doesn't allow for that. What he was trying to say is, God, God is the Word. Was the Word, will always be the Word. And so what John says at the very outset is that Jesus himself is God, and he's a God that we can know, and he has come so that we might 
actually know God. Know Him personally. Know Him really. He's the Creator. Verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What's John saying? He's telling us that there are many things that have kept us from knowing God. Our own sinfulness, the darkness of the spiritual world around us, the unrighteousness and the depravity that so permeates our contemporary experience, and even John's experience. But Jesus has come that we might know God. I think one thing that should quite stagger us, I don't think it does as often as it ought to. I think sometimes Christmas and Advent and and the basic themes of Scripture, we we lose the value and the, the glory of those truths because we've heard them so often. They become familiar. But I want you to think about this. The God who knows all, and the God who made all, and the God who was here long before anything else was here, and the God who designed you and imagined you and dreamed you up and dreamed the world up, He wants you to know Him. And He made it so that you and I, sitting in a congregation of other people, of other believers... In this congregation, so that you and I can have a personal, intimate, real, knowable interaction with God. Where God is talking to you and me, primarily through the pages of Scripture, but certainly through the Holy Spirit who dwells us. Music and song as we testify, Holy Spirit's working through those. He speaks to us and lets us speak to Him. Jesus came as the Word so that we might know God. That is a glorious privilege, an amazing reality. And no matter where you are, your background, your circumstance, your situation in life, God invites you to know Him. The Word was made flesh so that we might know God. Jesus came as the Word so we might know God. Let me give you a second observation. Jesus came in flesh so that we might relate to God. John gives us a little bit of an aside about John the Baptist and light and darkness. And for time's sake, we're not going to dive into all the details of that. But I do want you to pick up with me for just a moment in uh, chapter 1, verse 11. We mentioned he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So the Jewish people rejected Jesus. Get this, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. We're going to come back to that very promise and that hope at the end of our sermon. But I just want you to hear this at the outset. God, who is the creator of all things, knows all, is all, is glorious above all, not only invites you to know Him, but He invites you to become part of His family. If you believe on Jesus, you have the very right to call God your, our, Heavenly Father. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. Who were born, how, not of blood or the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came in flesh that we might relate to God. Now, I want you to grasp this for a second. Jesus, well, let me put it in these terms. Jesus came 
We talked about that in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. Jesus came. He was named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came when he was born into the world. But the Word, the second person of the Trinity, has always been. There was never a time when, and we can use this while Jesus was not named until he was born, Jesus has always been. From eternity past, God the Father and God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit have been living in perfect unity and perfect glorious relationship. And been doing so forever and forever, and will do so forever until forever and forever and forever. There will never be a time when they are not. And the beauty of John 1.14 says, The Word who has pre-existed, who has always been, became flesh. In other words, He decided, in obedience to the Father and submission to the Father's plan and will, He decided that He would obey God. And by obeying God, what did that mean? He was going to come in human flesh. He was going to take on something so that we might relate to God. I was listening, I am listening to an audio book about a missionary who went to be with some peoples in the jungle areas of Colombia and Venezuela. And one of the, the, the tribes that he interacted with was the Motolone tribe. And one of their legends was that a man had, had one day become an ant so that he could interact with the ants in the ant houses or the ant mounds that were built. And then eventually that man showed the ants that he was really a man. And it, it, the, the story goes that that particular individual, that legend, is why they build houses that look like ant mounds. That's the picture there. In other words, in order for the ants to, to, to know this human that came to be like them, he had to be like them, like an ant. And that's exactly what Jesus did, by the way, on a much grander scale. In order for us to relate to God, Jesus came in human flesh so that we could know Him and relate to Him. This is called the doctrine of the incarnation. God in human flesh, God in, in heaven took on human flesh so that we might relate to Him and interact with Him. It's a beautiful testimony. And what does that mean? It means that He came to dwell among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt. Literally tabernacled among us. The imagery there goes all the way back to the Old Testament where the Jewish people, under God's instruction, Moses had built the tabernacle. Why did He build the tabernacle? He built the tabernacle because that's the place where God was going to put His presence. That's the place where the priests went and offered sacrifices. That's the place where if you wanted to talk with God, meet with God, be forgiven by God, interact with God, you didn't do so at your home. You didn't do so down the street at the marketplace. You didn't do so in the wilderness. If you were going to interact with God in the Old Testament, you had to go to the tabernacle through the priest with a sacrifice in order for your faith to be expressed in the way that God desired. And the, where, the place where God dwelt was in the tabernacle. So that's where you went. You went to the tabernacle to meet with God. John in the glory of his gospel and in the wonder of what Jesus did tells us that Jesus came not so that we would know where to go to meet with God. Jesus came so that God would meet with us. Practically, here's what that means. God is not waiting on you to bring the right amount of sacrifices in order for you to meet with him. 
God is not waiting on you to bring the right amount of money in order for you to gain entrance into His presence. God is not waiting on you to clean up your act and make your life right and wash away your sins in order for you to interact with Him and know Him and relate with Him. No, that's not what's happening. God is not waiting on you to come to Him. God already came to you. God took the step. He's not waiting on us to get right. He came down and dwelt in human flesh so that you and I might relate to Him. In fact, He came in flesh so that you and I might experience forgiveness. John Piper put it this way. He said of the incarnation, Jesus took our nature in Bethlehem to die our death in Jerusalem that we might be fearless in our city today. His point is very simply this. The reason that Jesus came in human flesh is because our salvation necessitated death. Can I say this very clearly? God cannot die. Humans can't kill God. Satan can't kill God. God can't kill himself. But the only way that our forgiveness could be bought, the only way that our forgiveness could be accomplished, the only way that our salvation could be possible is if someone died. You can go all the way back to Genesis 3 when God orchestrated the sacrifice of that lamb so that Adam and Eve would have something to wear. In the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. The only way for our forgiveness, folks, to take place is if someone dies on our behalf. Someone is a substitute for us. And lambs and goats and rams and bulls and turtle doves are not perfect enough to cleanse us of our sin. So do you know what God did? God, in conference with Jesus, in conference with the Holy Spirit, they decided before the world was created that they were going to make a way for us to be forgiven. And Jesus said, I'll take on human flesh. I know I can't die as God, but as a man I can die. And as a man, I can die, and I can die on behalf of all of these people that don't deserve to have me die on behalf of all of their sins. But I can die, and I can die for them. And if they'll believe me and receive me, then they can experience the forgiveness that we want to offer, that Godhead, the Trinity wants to offer to all people who need that forgiveness. The Word became flesh. Jesus came in flesh so that we might relate to God. So that you and I might be able to experience forgiveness. And the incarnation is a glorious biblical doctrine that tells us that the the human person matters. Whole human person, body and spirit. Jesus came to be enfleshed. The incarnation tells us the humility of Jesus. Folks, think about this. That God, he, He didn't give up so much. I mean, He did give up a lot, but He kept His deity. I mean, Jesus was God in human flesh. He remained God in human flesh. Wherever He was, walking on planet Earth, He remained God. He didn't give up His deity, but His deity was shrouded by His humanity so that our forgiveness could take place. I want you to think about this. That is humility. Ultimately, that is humiliation. God who deserves to be worshipped, praised, adored, glorified, magnified. And we're going to do all of that in heaven. God took on the frailties of human existence. He took on sicknesses and fevers and headaches. He took on pains and cuts. He took on aging. He took on all of that. Simply because you and I needed a savior and needed a substitute and needed a forgiver. 
Think about this. The incarnation shouts about the lengths that God will go to save His creation. Some of you have been on mission trips. I've been all the way to Africa. I think that's the furthest I've been on a mission trip. That's a, that's a pretty long way. Some of you, I, I think Gary's been to India. That's further than I've been. India's a long way. Nobody has gone on a mission trip as extensive as the one Jesus went on. He came all the way from heaven to earth, to humanity, just so that we could be saved. Folks, the only way that our salvation can take place is through the fact that Jesus took on human flesh. Had He not been a baby... Had He not grown as a boy? Had He not taken on human flesh? Had He not been the divine God-man? The incarnate God-man? Had He not done that? You and I could not be forgiven of our sins. Listen, God did that so that we could experience salvation. Thirdly, Jesus came full of grace and truth. John gives some qualifiers here, some specifics, some definitions to why Jesus came. He came full of grace and truth. Why? To give us what we needed from God. I love John's descriptors here. Full of grace, full of truth. Why do we need grace? Uh, the Bible goes on to say, John goes on to say that the law came through Moses. Grace and truth have come, in through, come through Jesus. What does the law tell us? The law tells us that salvation is outside of our reach, is beyond our grasp, is something that we can't do. Uh, those of you that are here with me on Wednesday night, you're anticipating Christmas. I've got some, there's some kids in the room. I know you're looking forward to Christmas, right? You're looking forward to the presents you're going to open on Saturday morning, right? You're looking forward to those presents. Let's just be honest though. Some of us in the room tonight, and those of you that are watching at home, you've opened your Christmas presents already. Saturday's happened. You're worshiping with us on Sunday. Some of you did not deserve the present you got. Or presents you got. In fact, uh, many of us probably deserved coal rather than the presents we got. My wife showed me a meme the other day about a little boy who opened up a present and it was a lump of coal. And, and the caption was this little boy's eyes got really wide and he said, Coal! And then the very next image was of, a, of like a, 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 a structure that he had built that showed his rock collection. And he put coal in his rock collection. That's a kid who understands that you make the most out of what you get, no matter what it is that you get. The reality is, though, folks, grace is anything that we don't deserve. Jesus came full of grace. Do you know what you deserve? Do you know what I deserve? We deserve judgment. We deserve separation from God forever. We deserve punishment for our sins. Because the reality is, we're just like all those Jewish people in verse 11 of chapter 1. He came to us and, and we rejected Him. Folks, every time we tell a lie, every time we break God's law, every time we disobey, every time we dishonor, every time we act in, dis, in discord with what Scripture teaches, every time, here's what it shows. It shows that we are sinful human beings. And really, we want our own way. We want to go our own way, do our own thing. We want to get our own stuff. We want to be rulers our own. We want to rule ourselves. We want to be our own little gods. And you know what that deserves? That deserves punishment. 
But Jesus came not to give us what we deserve. He came to give us what we don't deserve. Forgiveness is not something you deserve. Salvation is not something we deserve. Relationship with God is not something we deserve. Jesus came full of grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor. So that we could have a relationship with God. But Jesus didn't just come full of grace. He came full of grace and truth. See, we need the truth so that we will see our need for grace. See, too many times, people within the church, people within the congregation of gathered believers, people outside the church, here's what we do. We believe lies. We don't believe the truth. And so we don't accept that we have a need for grace. Sometimes we believe the lie that we're better than we really are. I know a lot of folks that are in that category. Plenty of times in my life I've been in that category. I believe that I'm better than I really am. See, how do we do that? We do that when we uh, compare ourselves to one another. Because you can always find somebody that you're more generous than. You can always find somebody that you're nicer than. You can always find somebody you're kinder than. You can always find somebody that you give better gifts than that person does. You can always, if you compare yourself to one another, you can always, we can always find people that we're better than. The truth though, Jesus as being full of truth, reminds us that there's only one person we should compare ourselves to, and his name is Jesus, and he was perfect. Folks, if you believe that you're better than you really are, Here's what you're going to do. The tendency is for us to then say, God, I don't need you. I'm good enough on my own. And if we do that, we won't receive the grace and the free offer of salvation that Jesus has given to us. See, sometimes we need, and here's another lie that we have a tendency to believe, we'll believe the lie that our sin really isn't sin. I know some folks that have bought into that. They, they've bought into that hook, line, and sinker. They've listened to what the culture tells them should be right or wrong. Or they've listened to what their heart tells them should be right or wrong. And, and they, they say, say things like, well, that felt so good. It felt so right. It can't be wrong. It can be sinful. Listen, that's a lie. And I'm going to tell you what happens when we hold on to that particular lie and say, no, what I say is right is right, not what God says. God doesn't get to define sin. God doesn't get to define me. God doesn't get to define what I do. Here's what happens. We hold on to our own selfish approach to the world and we believe a lie that sin isn't really sin. And if we believe that sin isn't really sin, we'll never seek the right cure for the sin that we have. Folks, the only way that our sin can be cleansed and forgiven is through Jesus Christ. And if I'm going to stand before God and say, God, that isn't sin. You don't get to tell me what sin is. I'm going to do my own thing. Here's what we're saying. God, I'm not going to come to you for forgiveness your way. I've got to have things my way. And that's not the way to life. That's not the way to forgiveness. That's not the way to salvation. Folks, the only way that we can experience what Jesus offers us, full of grace and truth, salvation, eternal life, it's to come to Him on His terms. We can't come to Him on our own terms. 
We can't come to Him our own way. We can't come to Him with our own ideas, our own suggestions, our own opportunities. The Bible tells us as many as believed in Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God. And John reinforced that claim over and over in his gospel. He looked at Nicodemus, said to Nicodemus, a teacher of the law, you must be born again. And then gave the glorious explanation of that. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever does the works of the Father in heaven. No. Whosoever keeps the commands. No. Whosoever defines his own sinful life. No. Whosoever believes in Him shall have eternal life and not perish. Folks, John wrote his advent. John wrote his gospel to invite us and let us know that Jesus came into human flesh, giving us the privilege to know God, to relate to God, to be forgiven by God, to get what we need from God. And what we need from God is grace to wash away all our unrighteousness, truth to tell us what we need from God, that we need His grace. And how do we receive that? Folks, it is as simple as us believing in Jesus alone to be our Savior. Here's what should really stagger us. God created everything. Then God decided He was going to come in human flesh. He was going to step out of the glories of heaven to become like a baby. To become a baby. A child. Live life. Die on a cross. And do you know the only thing God asks of us to know Him? We, we might expect God to ask us to go on a grand journey. Might God expect God to ask us some grand task. God did all the work. All He asks of us is that we believe that He did the work so that we could have salvation. Folks, that's grace. That's grace upon grace upon grace. If you're here today and you're trying to earn some kind of favor with God by good works... I'm just going to tell you, stop. You'll never be good enough for God to be happy with you based on who you are. But you can be bad enough and receive grace through Jesus by putting your faith in Jesus where God will be happy with you because of what Jesus did on your behalf. That's grace. Some of you may be here in the room and you've never trusted Jesus to be your Savior. You're trying to work your way into heaven. You're trying to earn God's pleasure. You're trying to make God happy with your behavior. It's not going to work. It's not going to be good enough. Know that you need Jesus to be your Savior. Receive Him by grace. Simply put your trust in Jesus alone to save you and He'll save you. That's a glorious testimony. Some of you in the room have done that. You've trusted Jesus to be your Savior. Let me say a hearty amen. Thank God that you've done that. And then you know what we have a tendency as humans to do? We revert back to the way we used to be. We go back to the Old Testament and think, okay, i got to make God happy now with the law. i got to be good enough and nice enough and and happy enough and all the things that I've got to do. And we put all of this pressure on ourselves to be all of this that we think God wants us to be. Jesus is full of grace and truth. 
to give us grace upon grace. He didn't come to add to the law and make our lives harder. He came to be the law, to accomplish the law, to die on a cross so that the law would be covered and paid for so that our sin would be washed away so that you and I could live under grace and under spiritual freedom knowing that Jesus has already done all the work. That's the glory of the advent. That's the glory of the gospel. So if you're trying somehow, some way to earn God's happiness with you, stop. Just recognize Jesus has already done it. Those have the right to become the children of God by believing on Jesus. Make this one last connection and we'll close with the invitation. Some of us don't feel like we belong anywhere. We're estranged from family. We're, we're, we're disconnected from people that we love. We're not sure that we belong. John 1.12 says that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you belong in a family. You belong with a father that will never not listen to you. You belong with a father that will never abuse you. You belong with a father that will always protect you. You belong with someone who will care for you forever and ever. And even if relationally in your human connections you're isolated, you'll never not belong because you're a part of God's family. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. That is a message that draws and invites you to know God and relate to God. If you're here today and you'd like to have a Heavenly Father who will never not be there, come to this altar and trust Jesus to be your Savior. If you're at home watching and you'd like to know more about trusting Jesus to be your Savior and belonging in a family with a God who loves you, a Father who loves you, I would invite you to give us a call. There might be a number on the screen or send us an email, info at wilkesboroughbaptist.org. We'll be happy. Comment in the comment section. We'll talk you through what it means to know God and experience eternal life. Because folks, Jesus came to die your death so that we could live his life and know him. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 